few years ago, I was uh, talking with a fellow Christian brother about things related to home and family. Um, and at one point in the conversation, I remember him saying to me, uh, he, he said, you know, Tim, even though I know as the husband and father in my home, I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my family. I was never taught exactly how I'm supposed to go about doing that since my dad never set a good example for me in that department growing up. At another time, I was talking with a uh, dear Christian sister about a similar topic, and she confided to me how during her childhood, her own dad was never very consistent at leading the family in spiritual matters, except for the times the preacher would preach on the subject, and and he would get convicted and try to start a new routine with the family with some kind of family devotions or uh, deliberate dinner time discussions, only for a few weeks of that to happen, um, after which he would start to slack off again, and things gradually returned to the way they were. And and then this lady told me, she said, I'm ashamed to admit it, but because of my dad's inconsistency growing up, my mom and my siblings and I uh, never took what he was trying to do very seriously. And instead of encouraging him and supporting him to lead the family in those ways, uh, we ended up making jabs and poking fun at him whenever he did try to lead, knowing it would only be short-lived. She said, now looking back, she feels like she was probably partly to blame for her dad's inconsistency in leading the family because she never gave him much of a chance to, to do so. She then went on to say that that having grown up, gotten married, and started a family of her own, how she's having to practically learn from scratch how to support her husband's efforts to create a spiritual environment in the home instead of uh, smothering and extinguishing that flame before it ever has a chance to grow. Well, I'm convinced that a version of one of those two stories is probably shared by a lot more Christian homes than just the two individuals I mentioned. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you, I for one can certainly relate, uh, having come from a broken home myself, resulting in my siblings and I hopping back and forth between two separate homes for most of my childhood. I don't, I don't feel I ever had a clear and consistent spiritual direction set for uh, my family growing up, at least not relating to my family as a whole. And so I've, I've also had to learn over the years what it means to create a spiritual environment for my home and, and not just what it means, but what it looks like on a practical level, uh, which is why I've, I've decided to put uh, together a short series here titled The Christian Home to try and explore that subject in greater detail. The way I want to approach it is as if we were taking a kind of imaginary walkthrough of the model Christian home. Uh, we'll do this in a Bible study or devotional style format, and, and as we look at, at different scriptures, we'll try to paint a picture of the various aspects or areas of a Christian home, beginning at the front door itself and taking a room-by-room -room tour through the home. T to give you just a preview of, of how I see this going, um, as I said, I want to start at the front door, as it were, of the Christian home and, and take some time to point out all the coming and going of those in the family and, and notice together specifically how the Christian family treats their home, not like their ultimate home at all, but more as a kind of temporary home base for ministry or for kingdom purposes, not only uh, within the home itself, but within the surrounding community and a local church context as well. 
Um, a- after that, we'll, we'll take an episode to step through the front door to be greeted first by all the sights and smells coming from the kitchen and dining room. We'll notice the, the fellowship and hospitality happening there, as well as the, the shared enjoyment and God's gift of the good food choices being prepared and served there. Next, we'll get up from the table and move into the living room where we'll see and talk about uh, what entertainment and leisure looks like in the Christian home and the various forms that can look. In another episode, not to, not to get too weird with the analogy, we'll, uh, we'll put our ear against the door of the master bedroom of a Christian husband and wife to hear some of the, the conversations happening there. Uh, we'll also acknowledge the privacy and sacredness of the act of the precious consummation also happening there. Again, we won't get too weird about it. Um, but then we'll step into the kids' rooms and see some of the things happening there. Specifically, when the room becomes the proverbial woodshed and and training and discipline are needed, we'll watch how the Christian sits down on the edge of the bed and and has those heart-to-heart talks, or on occasion, those paddle-to-bottom talks, right? Uh, We'll see tears shed and hopefully uh, tears dried. And then in the last episode of this series, I want to peek our head into a family's prayer closet to, to see what personal and family worship looks like in, in the devoted Christian home. We'll acknowledge the various forms that could look and how God uses the family altar, if we can use that phrase, much in the same way he uses the church altar to, uh, to, to meet with us and to conform us more to his image, ultimately all for his glory. So that's the plan for this series on the Christian home. If you haven't subscribed to our channel already and are interested in following along in this little Bible study style uh, walkthrough, I I do encourage you to go ahead and subscribe so you you don't miss one of these lessons. By way of introduction, though, in this episode, what what I thought I'd do uh, before having us take our little tour is to, to first take a few steps back. Uh, maybe for more of a curbside view or uh, a peeking through the blinds from the neighbor's house view to ask the question, what makes a Christian home a Christian home in general? And, and how is that different than any other home in the neighborhood? In other words, what is a Christian home fundamentally or foundationally? In order to answer that question, I want us to think about the example we see in Joshua 24. If you're unfamiliar, the the book of Joshua takes place during a time when the entire nation of Israel, uh, once captives in Egypt for 400 years, then homeless wanderers in, in the wilderness for another 40 years, are now finally preparing to settle into their new homes in the land of Canaan, a land that, that God has given to them. So, under a large-scale resettlement plan, each of Israel's 12 tribes are given their allotted lands, which includes all the the vacated cities, farms, and homes left behind by the Canaanites. Those properties were then divided up according to each tribe's individual clans, uh, divided again to each clan's individual family branches, then divided again to each of the family branches' individual family units or households, Eventually, every individual Hebrew family was given their own new home to move into. Just just try to imagine what that must have been like. Every house in every town in Israel had a U-Haul in its driveway. Okay, there there wouldn't have been U-Hauls, but 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 you get the idea. 
And, and, and to be fair, I do understand the settlement of Canaan actually happened more gradually over a longer period of time, but uh, for, for the most part, everybody was getting settled into their new home around the same general time period. And all of that is taking place in the book of Joshua. By the time you get to chapter 24, after all, all the lands have been divided up, Joshua holds a special meeting. He gathers all of Israel's leaders together, including all the heads of the families, and reminds them who they are as Israelites and and what sets them apart from every other nation of the world. Lest they forget in, in all their settling and homemaking and inadvertently become just like all the pagan nations around them. In an attempt to not let that happen, Joshua reminds everyone what it is that makes their homes uniquely set apart or holy to the Lord. Actually, before mentioning that, uh, it's, it's worth pointing out from the context what it wasn't that made them holy. For, for starters, we can point out it wasn't the sanctity of the land itself or the homes built on it that, that set them apart. Uh, It it is certainly true that that God's covenant with Israel included the promise of a specific piece of land to live on, which we all now refer to as the Holy Land. But uh, to, to be sure, it wasn't the land itself or its physical features or its borders or its infrastructure or or anything like that that made it holy. Don't forget the land of Israel itself was once owned by a pagan people. Later in Israel's history, it would fall under the occupation of the Assyrians and and the Babylonians and the Romans and others. So so it wasn't anything intrinsically special about the land itself that made it the Lord's. Furthermore, it wasn't the sanctitude of, of the Israelites themselves or their past heritage that made them holy. Even though, again, yes, another big part of God's covenant with Israel also included a promise made to a chosen line of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, along with all their descendants. But there again, it, it wasn't their personal virtue that made them holy. In fact, in verse 2 of the chapter, it's pointed out how how Abraham himself originally came from a family that served other gods. That, that's not exactly a legacy of virtue. In verse 14, it's implied that there were at least some, even among the Exodus generation, that, that would be uh, the parents and grandparents of Joshua's generation who came out of Egypt, who uh, were themselves guilty of serving the gods of Egypt while living there. Again, that, that's not a very virtuous family heritage. So it, it wasn't anything inherently special about the Israelites that made them the Lord's. So then what was it? Well, I think it comes down to two fundamental things. Number one, an Israelite family was understood to be holy and set apart as the Lord's first and foremost because it had been graciously called out by the Lord to be his people. Joshua 24 puts it this way in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
But then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob. Fast forwarding to to the time of the Exodus, he said, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, and, and afterwards I brought you out. In verse 8, then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. They fought with you. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. Verse 11, and you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. At the end of verse 12, he says, it was not by your sword or by your bow. The whole point being conveyed is that God's people are God's people and have been given their new homes not because of any choice or inherent merit on their part to be his people or because there's anything intrinsically about the the land that makes those living there his people, but because of God's sovereign grace to make them his people. That's the only fundamental difference between Israel and all the nations around them. It's all God's sovereign grace. That happens to be the theme, not only in the book of Joshua, but in every other book of the Bible. A person, a family, a nation belongs to the Lord for no other reason than God deciding it to be so. That's that's not to say there didn't result any practical lifestyle differences between God's people and the pagan world, because there certainly did, which is why, secondly, an Israelite family was, was also understood to be holy and set apart as the Lord's, subsequently because it had been graciously transformed by the Lord to live like his people. To mention just some of those practical differences, Joshua 24 includes the charge. Verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Practically speaking, as as a continued outworking of God's grace in them, an Israelite household became holy to the Lord to the degree it maintained a healthy fear of the Lord, a genuine commitment to serve the Lord, and a repentant resolve to rid their homes of whatever idols would otherwise rob them of their true worship and devotion to the Lord, whether those idols were introduced by their parents before them or by the secular cultures uh, they were surrounded by. Joshua lays out the, the serious choice every home must make for itself, not, not diminishing the fact that, that their election and adoption was, was all by grace. It's made equally clear that there exists some individual responsibility in terms of, of uh, conforming to that holy calling. A family can't simply presume upon grace while still living however they want. A a family can't presume just because they belong to a community that by and large does belong to the Lord that it necessarily belongs to the Lord too. No, every family must itself decisively live according to the Lord's expectations for them. Hence Joshua's charge, choose this day whom you will serve. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember that that charge was given to all the leaders of Israel, including all the heads of the families. In effect, every husband and father in Israel was given the task of spiritually shepherding their families and leading them on a daily, weekly, yearly basis in obedience to the Lord. If you're a husband or father listening to this episode, let me just say that charge continues to apply today. Except instead of creating distinctly Israelite homes, our job is to, to create distinctly Christian homes. There are some important differences between the two, but, but foundationally the same principles apply. If you're a wife or, or mother in the home or even one of the young adults in your family, there is an implied responsibility on your part too, and, and that is to support your husband or father in the creation of that Christian home. Trust me, you don't want to be working against him in that. By the way, I I understand being married and having children isn't uh, a prerequisite for having a Christian home, and and there isn't always a father figure to to step up to lead in the ways I'm talking about. Um, But for the sake of the series, I am referring to the nuclear family as a a model. One can always apply this uh, according to their own situation. Um, well, a, a final thing I want to point out from Joshua 24 is, is the enthusiastic response of the people to Joshua's charge. And in verse 16, the, the, the people respond saying, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. In other words, Joshua gets some really good feedback. Everybody seems really on board with the whole idea of establishing God-honoring homes. Yeah, count us in. Sign us up for that. We want to be known as a holy household. And I suppose some of that excitement is a good thing. But but in a very sobering way, Joshua cautions them in all their enthusiasm by saying in verse 19, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. (laughs) That, That is to say, you may find all this exciting now, but make no mistake, this isn't a game. Don't approach this flippantly. If you are committing to serve the Lord, you better serve the Lord. If you set out to do this, only to do it half-heartedly or to throw in the towel some point down the road, God has every right to consume you in his wrath when he sees the sin you bring to his service. This is, this is serious business. Hence why I think at key times throughout the book, Joshua points the people to the important practice of making atonement for their sins. Because the the fact of the matter is, while they have this holy calling, they are still sinners at heart. That They can't live up to the high standard they've been called to, and they desperately need forgiveness. It, It all goes back to grace. Throughout this series, we're we're going to be talking about a lot of practical things we can be doing to make our homes more Christian. But uh, but but we have to acknowledge at the outset that a home doesn't become more Christian simply because it does Christianly things, but because it's a recipient of grace, and that includes the redeeming grace that comes by way of atonement. 
We know ultimately that atonement is applied to us by Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. Without Christ and without the cross, there is no Christian home. Just as an Israelite home was identified on the night of Passover fundamentally by the blood on its lintel and doorposts, a Christian home is identified fundamentally by the blood shed on that old rugged cross. I hope you'll join me as we walk up to the grace-covered door of the Christian home and take our Bible study-style walkthrough to see how God sets it apart for his service and good pleasure, all made possible by grace and all done ultimately for his glory. Again, I invite you to subscribe to our channel to, to be sure you don't miss this series of episodes. Until then, God bless. 